Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Good morning. Well, I think I would be amiss if, if we didn't. This is the last service of the year, so I feel like I need to say a few thank yous. And most of all, I just want to say thank you to everyone who served this year. There's so many of you, just from the people on the door. I mean, Adiemi's team there. We've got the Stina's Fika team. We've got the kids workers at Christelle's team of Alta Garcia and, and Joyce. Um, my team, they've been sh- scrambling in the background today because all of called in sick this morning. And so it's been a, just a tag team operation back there. John, uh, Justin Smith's been helping out old-timer, just hopped back in the team. Um, Francis has been running around like crazy. Uh, everyone's just been mucking in to help out, and, and that, that's pretty much a typical Sunday here at the church. We're helping each other to make church happen, and we, we couldn't do it without each other. So I just want to say, like, from the bottom of my heart, thanks to everyone who served this year. Um, it's what made church happen, and uh, it's, it's the reason why we can be blessed, because we all, we all come together and make things happen, so thank you so much for that. I pray that you have a nice, restful, peaceful Christmas. We know that that won't be consistently the truth, but I hope you get some moments, <laughs> some moments. Um, yeah, it's, so I'm, I'm finishing off this series. It feels like my mic's a bit loud, maybe turn it down a bit, scaring myself. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Great. Um, it's kind of ironic that we have this series about the light when it's probably never been more expensive to have your lights on than it is right now, uh, lighting your homes. But that doesn't stop us. We're lighting up our homes, enjoying this time of the year, making it cozy. I, I've just been hearing so many crazy stories, though, about like the costs of electricity right now. Um, I won't tell you how much Matthew told me. It made me cry when I heard it. <laughs> But I heard, like, the local Chinese restaurant, they had to pay 100,000 crowns this month. So I went and checked, because I know the guy, so I went and had a chat with him. I, I said, do you ever thought about turning some lights off? And he goes, no, but we have dim sum. <laughs> Sorry. Christmas is about dad jokes, right? So I just had to slip one in there. Right, I'm going to be serious from now on, right? The sermon begins here, all right? So we cut that bit from the podcast. That was a bit silly wasn't a true story. So as we wait for Christmas, we remember that Christ not only came, but is coming back. You know, we talk a lot about like Advent is about waiting, right? And we, we retrace the steps of, okay, before Jesus came, people were waiting for a Messiah. And in the same way, we, we, we go through that rhythm of waiting through the Advent series, but we're actually waiting as well. We're waiting for the return of Christ, and that's what I want to remind us about this morning. That's what I want to talk about when I say anticipate the light. What do we mean there? We're anticipating the return of Christ. Not only are we going to experience his light, it, his light is going to be overwhelming. And so I'm going to explain a little bit about this this morning. But this series, just to recap, we have learned that we have been called out of the darkness to walk in the light, to see the light, and to let our light shine. And as we learn today, to anticipate life lived fully in the light of Christ in new creation. In other words, we've looked at the bad news, the darkness. We've looked at the good news that the light has come. 
And can you believe it? Now we get the really good news. I'm not introducing something new here, okay? <laughs> because Jesus being born was just the first installment, really. It was uh, the, the first fruits, as Paul says. It was part one. You could say it was a new hope. Uh, and the sequel, just for once, is even better. Uh, it's worth waiting for, which is more than I can say for a lot of series these days. Uh, what, so what is that follow-up to the good news of Easter that we talk about so much and we celebrate, rightfully so? Well, I'm going to read it now from Revelations, uh, the book of Revelation, sorry, uh, 21, 1 to 6. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up because we're going to be referring to this throughout my message. So it would be good to have it open. Otherwise, it's up on the screen. It says this. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he told me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. Well, there's a lot in that passage, uh, as there is in the book of Revelation. Um, I don't know your relationship to the book of Revelation, uh, but I grew up hearing some pretty wacky teaching <laughs> what this book was actually all about. Has anyone else had that experience to me? Okay, there's a few. Okay, I'm not alone here. So I, I found this teaching, it was a, a lot of stuff I heard made me very confused. And I, I felt like it was almost unhealthy for my faith. Like it, it almost produced fear in me sometimes, some of the stuff that I was being told about what it says. So much so that for a large part of my journey as a Christian, I kind of took that book and just put it on the shelf and go, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to engage with that book because it's causing me issues, right? And it's only been in recent years that after having studied the Bible myself in a little bit more depth and got some good teaching that I've been able to engage with this book in, I believe, a more healthy way. And I believe understand it as it was intended by John, its writer, So there's a few key things that you need to do in order to, I believe, interpret in the right way. And the first one is the book of Revelation must be understood in the context of the rest of the Bible. Okay, it's it's the thing about it is that it's purely symbolic book. So to understand it, you first need to understand the Bible. So don't start in the book of Revelation. That's a tip, (laughs) which is not this is not so strange when you consider that it's actually the end of a story. It's the end of an arc. Like nobody opens up a novel and reads the last chapter and goes, oh yeah, I get what that's all about. You wouldn't, would you? That's crazy. 
It's not simply what will happen in the future. It's where we are actually heading now, where we have been heading since Jesus rose again. And it's supposed to affect how we live today as believers. That's why I'm talking about it this Sunday morning. So like Ezekiel and Daniel, it is symbolic visions. You know how Daniel had those symbolic visions that were like crazy and you needed interpretation? It's very much like that. They reveal a heavenly perspective on history in the light of its final outcome. So what it is not, it is not some predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. It's not something you can crack and and figure out all the details. That's not the point of it. Rather, John is using symbols drawn from the Old Testament, expecting us as its readers to learn what they mean by looking up the text he's clearly referencing. There's so many references to the Old Testament. So unless you understand that, you're not going to get the book of Revelation. Okay? So the book of Revelation is kind of a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. Here's a few. New heaven and earth. That was prophesied in Isaiah 65. New garden of Eden. That's echoed in Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 47. New Jerusalem, spoken of in Isaiah 2 and Zephaniah 3. If you hadn't read that, you could draw some really funny conclusions just by reading the book of Revelation on its own. So these references would not have been lost on the early church. They knew the Tanakh, the Old Testament, like the back of their hand. So it was pretty clear for them, but maybe not for us. Secondly, it must also be understood in the context of the time in history, a time when the church was facing great persecution. I mean, to to the likes that we couldn't even fathom. And this, this book was a vision of hope that sustained the church in one of the toughest periods in the early church. John didn't write this as some kind of da Vinci code to crack. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to comfort and to encourage believers to continually, faithfully witness to Christ in the face of great suffering and temptations to compromise or renounce their faith. David Campbell in his book, Mystery Explained, says it this way. He says, the vision and the book as a whole are designed as a pastoral encouragement to believers to persevere in the face of suffering. That's not how I saw it as a kid, some of the stuff I heard. It wasn't explained in that way at all. So I'm glad that I've discovered that. The early church survived some of the worst persecution. People were fed to lions. They were crucified. They were stoned to death. And they could do it without renouncing their faith. And I'm not just talking about, you know, adult men. This is like whole families. I mean, it's horrific things we're talking about here. Um, And they could do this without renouncing their faith. I find that hard to even understand. Like, I'm not sure I could do that, honestly, if I'm being honest. Um, But instead, they testified their faith to the end. And in fact, Tertullian, who was one of the early Christian writers in the year 150 AD, so about, I think, 60, yeah, 90, 90 years after this book was written, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because the thing about these Christians, they didn't just get killed. They, they died well. They died and that, like declaring their faith and their testimony so that the people that actually martyred them, they started thinking, hey, there might be something about this Christianity because I've never seen anyone die like that before. They're so, they have such a strong conviction that it actually became a witness, right? 
And that actually fulfilled a prophecy in Revelations 12, 11, where it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. So it's pretty incredible that the book of Revelations is actually talking about real (laughs) events that will happen. So how? Because these people, the reason why they were able to do it is because they had a living hope, not just some abstract understanding of what salvation was. And I'm happy today that many of us, we've never and hopefully never experienced persecution on this level. But it is actually estimated, I think there's a picture actually, that one in eight Christians in the world today suffer serious persecution. Maybe you come from a country where it's happened. I know we're from all over the world. Or maybe you know someone who has suffered persecution. And it's actually getting worse. Uh, research shows that it's increasing. And especially this time of the year, Christmas, where it's a Christian festival, is often a lot of persecution. I mean, I've got some pictures back there. It's countries like the Middle East where um, I, I think like in the past centuries, like the 1800s, like a quarter of the Middle East was Christian. And today it's almost non-existent. They've been, there's a whole diaspora around the world uh, escaping persecution. So it's still an issue today. It's still relevant. But even so, we are not alien to suffering here in, in, in Sweden or in the West, if you like. We all have reason to shed tears. We all have reason to feel hopeless at times, to feel like giving up, uh, to question uh, if we're really doing the right thing. And so in these moments of hopelessness, we too, we need some encouragement. We need a living hope just as much as someone facing persecution in another part of the world. We need encouragement to persevere despite living in the relative comfort that we do in the West, right? So what is the vision that has sustained the church through the centuries? I mean, there's been a lot of religions and stuff that have come and go and gone in popularity, but Christianity has continued to just grow in its influence and, and reach. And how is that sustained, even though there's been great persecution throughout the centuries? Well, I think it's about a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven, a new earth that is coming down. I love that fact. It's coming down. Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That one day, the pain, the suffering, and the evil of this world would depart, and that God would dwell with us and complete his redemptive work of making all things new. That was a comfort to those early Christians that were suffering persecution, that they knew that there was an end to this. They knew that there, 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 there was a home that they would come to eventually where they would find peace, they would find rest, they would escape this turmoil that they were facing in the world. And so I'm glad that I've taken the time to get a deeper understanding of the Bible, although I'm constantly trying to learn more. It's, it's frustrating almost. If, if not, I think I would have been disillusioned, though, uh, with Christianity a long time ago. When I was a teenager... I was, some of you know this, I was into surf culture. I say I was in surf culture because I'm not much of a surfer, but I actually had a surf shop. <laughs> I like the business side, but I did like the surf culture. Um, I was really into it. Uh, all my friends were like into it. And so I've all, the thing is, I've always loved the ocean, 
I could say that, okay? Um, and I, I remember being told by a veteran Christian, uh, you, you know, in heaven, there is no sea. Uh, it says in the book of Revelation that there will be no more seas, only the lake of fire. So I, I was just like, oh, man, I was crushed. I was like, that sucks. I don't even know if I want to go to heaven now. No ocean. I love the ocean. So much so that when I moved to Sweden, I said to Lynn, I was like, I can't live in Uppsala. There's no ocean there. We have to go to Malmö or Gothenburg. That's the only two options. Like, I'm not living in a landlocked place. I love it. So when I heard this, I was just, like, really bummed because I had a surf shop. You know, I felt like it was, like, my mission, calling in life, you know, like, running a surf shop for Christ. I was a young guy. Um, and I was involved in Christian surfers and stuff like that. And so I was really disappointed. I love the ocean. I miss it being here. The Öresund is not the ocean. The Öresund is a bathtub. It's like nothing happens there, right? It's like you, know, you go to Cornwall, where I'm from, in the southwest of England. It's like the roaring waves. The waves are crashing on the rocks, and it's just like there's life out there. You could just stare out and, at the sea, and you're content. And just watch the moving waters. I love that. So, yeah, I was pretty disappointed about that. Uh, but... Thing is, he was right. It does say that in the book of Revelation. But what I didn't know, and apparently not him either, even though he was like 20 years older than me, is that it's not supposed to be read literally. And if you do read it literally, you're going to get very confused. You have to do some mental gymnastics because otherwise there's loads of contradictions. How can Jesus be a river but there's no sea? That doesn't make sense. So don't take things literally. This is symbolism. You have to understand the symbolism in it, right? So the reality is we're not being whisked away to some alien kingdom where we lose the things we love about God's creation. No, thank God, right? God is actually coming down to make all things new. Like the penny of this only just dropped recently for me. Not like this week, but in recent years, and, and this gets me really excited because I love God's creation, right? So that is a vision that I can get excited about. I, I, I was a bit unsure about heaven growing up, to be honest. It, it was misrepresented to me. You know, people talked about, you know, streets of gold. I'm like, I don't even really like gold. It's not really, it's like, <laughs> I'm quite fine with concrete, you know? It's like, it's like <laughs> but this symbolism was lost on me, right? And so it wasn't until I got to know Jesus personally that I realized the same God that created this beautiful planet, uh, its wildlife, and the crown jewel of creation, humankind, made in his own image, that same God is going to make all things new. And he's not like, oh, I messed it up last time. Let me do something different. No, he, he, what did he say about his creation? It's good. I think it's pretty good, too. I think it's pretty amazing, actually. But what we do know is that the old sin, death, and suffering will pass away. Thank God. That is a vision worth living for. And it is the hope that has helped his church to overcome this world. It's overcome in this world. So if we don't have hope for our future, we can't endure our now. Psychologists talk about this a lot. So having something to live for. A living hope is known to create resilience in people to endure. There are many examples. I could have pulled some illustrations. You know, you could look at prisoners of war. You could look at cancer patients. 
You could look at others facing great trials that have been able to survive because of sense of hope, something to live for, something beyond their current circumstances. There has to be something beyond. If you don't have a reason to get up in the morning, it's very difficult to navigate life. So what about these everyday battles of life? Because we are all facing it. You know, there's a lot of talk about people like, people right now struggling in this world. There are a lot of battles that people are facing in our modern world. And so we all need this hope. I really believe that. Everyone, us in the church, those people outside definitely need this hope. We need this hope. Is the revision of light that we are anticipating that we can share with others? There is a longing in all of us. This is something I'm really convicted about. There's that hope of satisfaction that seems so elusive, right? I find myself often saying, if I just get through this day, if I just get through this week, this season, the things will be easier, they'll be better. Any parents agree? <laughs> heard that before? <laughs> Most of us live in a cycle of looking constantly to the next moment of respite, the weekend, Christmas holidays, etc. It goes on. And the thing is, it's fleeting. They will come and go, and we'll be back on the cycle. Yet there is a desire for peace in us. There's a desire for rest, real rest. There's a desire for wholeness. And we as Christians, we can get a foretaste of that satisfying water that the passage talked about. Maybe you experienced it here this morning. I know I certainly did. As, as we were in a moment of worship, we orientated ourselves towards God and his presence. We drink from a stream, but one day we will do it from a fountain. We'll be at the source. Who is it given to? It's given to the thirsty. I think that's one of the reasons why we're here this morning, because we are thirsty. We're thirsty for God. Jesus on the cross, he thirsted for the water of life. He was in a state of what Tim Keller calls cosmic hopelessness. It was in that experiencing our agony of separation from God that he called out, I thirst. Now, he was fulfilling a prophecy, first and foremost, that, that he would say that. But it did speak to a longing in all of us for that water of life, that, that the separation of sin, there's that longing for something beyond. It's only found in Jesus. And so our hope is that deepest desires of a heart will be satisfied at his spring, that it talks about in that passage in Revelation. So if you believe what Jesus did for you, then you can have the hope for today. You can have an unbreakable hope when you believe that no matter what happens to you, now will only make you better. That's, that's a truth, but it's like, kind of, yeah, I believe that. You, you know, because it's like, I mean, the reality is, no matter, no matter what happens to you, it can only make you better. It can, it can make you a better person, or it can take you to a better place. We don't like to talk about that. We... we <laughs> We try to avoid death, and rightfully so. I'm trying to avoid death. <laughs> but the reality is, this is just a foreshadow of, like, eternity with God. And it's that conviction that, that the early church had that meant that they could sustain unbelievable persecution. 
this, obviously, this conviction, I, I felt like as a young Christian, I, I believed that wholeheartedly. Like, oh, even death has lost its sting. Like, I was just like, you know, nothing can harm me. You know, God, I'm God's child and all this stuff. But then as I get a bit older, I feel like I have more to lose. You know, I've got kids and I've got a wife. You know. <laughs> so I am a little bit more, I want to protect, uh, and rightfully so. So, but the reality is, according to Scripture, that even death has lost its sting. It's just the shadow passing over. For believers like those being persecuted even today, that is their reality, that death is just a shadow passing over us because they believe the hopeful words of John the Revelator that he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, if John's message galvanized the early church that faced horrendous persecution, how does the knowledge of our future transform how we meet life's challenges today? I think that's the question worth asking ourselves. So in the Gospels, Jesus Christ is revealed as the light of the world. And how we respond to this light is our judgment. We either love the light and move towards it, or we hate the light, light and we seek to escape from it. But there is no escape from the light other than to willingly choose to inhabit the outer darkness. And this is kind of my frustration. It was actually the reason why I raised my hand. I was thinking about family members because I, I have family members that can see how living in the light is blessing us yet they choose to stay in the shadows. Like, they're like, oh, it's a good thing. I'm so happy for you, but I'm going to stay here in the shadows. And it's like, why would you do that? I can't understand that. It's frustrating. And Brian Zand, he likens this attitude to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, gnashing his teeth in the darkness outside the father's house, refusing to join the party, because he continues to nourish his resentment towards his sinful brother. And it can be a lot of reasons why you decide to stay out the house. That's just one example. It can be a lot of hang-ups that stop us from stepping into God's light. Maybe it's a misunderstanding of who God is and what he thinks of you. But we have to help people realize that it's on our side. That we can always step into the light that, that God is inviting us. He never closes his doors. The book of Revelation's hope that Christ will ultimately reconcile and restore all things does not eliminate, unfortunately, our self-exile in the outer darkness for those who refuse the light of Christ. So that's really our mission. We have to invite people in. We have to help people see. We have to be the light in our world. The question always remains, though, and the question that we should pose maybe is, Christ or what? When a great many disciples walked away from Jesus because of his scandalous talk of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that sermon did not go down well, <laughs> Jesus posed a very poignant question to the twelve. He said, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter, he was on form when he replied, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter knew it's Jesus or nothing. It's the light or the dark. The new heaven and the new earth, they give us a vision of the future, but also meaning to inhabit today. If it can motivate the persecuted to endure, it should motivate us here and how we live and how we wait today. I challenge all of us to walk in the light, to ask to see the light, to let his light shine through us, for we are the light of the world in our faithful waiting. What we do while we wait, it matters. I love that it matters, that we're not just waiting to be beamed up by Scotty. What we do here matters because God has actually made us a certain way for eternal purposes. It's not just for something to do while you're waiting, something to keep you busy. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the testing of our works, that what we are building is actually for eternity. Um, N.T. Wright in a book, Surprised by Hope, he talks about the continuity between how we live now and how we will live forever. I think that's pretty cool, actually, that there's a continuity there. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbors yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, he's English, you can tell, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. I love that. It's crucial for us to understand that this hope is not just for tomorrow, it's for today. One night in Bethlehem, hope entered our world, and that light overcame the darkness and brought about the dawn of a new age on Easter Sunday. I'm going to invite Shettle up, a.k.a. the band. I've read this one before, but I, it's personal favorite. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, The Everlasting Man, he describes the scene on Easter Sunday. He says, on the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. And in varying ways, they realized the new wonder. But even they hardly realized that the world had actually died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. See, if, if sin ushered in the night, Jesus' death and resurrection was the dawning of a new day for us. We are experiencing the first rays of that age today. But there will come a time when that sun will never cease, that the darkness will have nowhere to hide. And John did not write this as a secret predictive code about the timing of the end world. No, no. He, it's a symbolic vision for every generation of the church that reveals history's patterns and God's 
promises. All human kingdoms, they become Babylon. They must be resisted. But the really good news is that Jesus will return to remove evil from this world and make all things new. Amen. And that is a message that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the King returns. That's what we're anticipating this Christmas, the, the return of the King. I'm going to read one last passage here from Revelation 21, 23, 25. It's just a little bit later on in that chapter. It says this, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its lamp. And by its light, the nations will walk, and into it, the kings of the earth will bring their glory. Its gates will never be shut at the end of the day, because there will be no night there. I would like to close off this series with the famous last words of um, poet Goethe. And he said this, he said, more light, more light. Open the window so that more light may come in. To that I say, amen. Let's stand. I just want to pray for you before we go back into worship. Thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, Lamb of God, we thank you for your loving light that shines upon us, banishing the shadows of our hidden places. Lord, I pray this morning that you would let your light overwhelm us. Let darkness no longer have any place in us. Lord, let your light shine. Light of the world. In your holy name, we pray this.